Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Is Hell Real? All right, well today's subject, obviously, not the most popular uh, subject out there, but it is where we are in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Mark, and so we're gonna deal with it today. I have to admit, if I was a topical preacher, I'd probably be tempted to skip the subject matter today. I probably would be tempted not to deal with the topic of hell. But we are a Calvary Chapel, which means that I have been given the task of expository preaching. Now, if you're new to Calvary, you might say, well, what is expository preaching? There's a great definition on gotquestions.org. Here it is. Expository preaching involves the exposition of the scripture. It presents the meaning and the intent of a biblical text, providing commentary and examples to make the passage clear and understandable. The expository preacher's goal is simply to expose the meaning of the Bible, what? Verse by verse, okay? And so pastors that choose to teach topically, what they do is they start off with the topic. Pastors who choose to preach expositorily, they start off with the text, where we are, okay? And so a topical preacher starts with the topic, let's say the love of God, and then he will search the scriptures for verses that support that topic, and then he will preach on that topic. By the way, there's nothing inherently wrong with topical preaching as long as the pastor is practicing exegesis and not eisegesis. Let me explain that because it's important not just for preaching, but it's also important for your Calvary group that you're gonna get involved in next month, and it's also important for your personal devotions. There's a difference between exegesis and eisegesis. One's good, one's bad. Exegesis means ex, out, to draw out the meaning, the intended meaning of the author in the text. And so when you come to a verse in the Bible or a passage in the Bible, exegesis means you want to expose the meaning, draw out the meaning, and and the way you do that is you look at the uh, grammatical implications, you look at the historical setting, you look at the context, you don't take verses out of his context, you leave them in their context, you read the verses before and the verses after, you're looking to draw out the intended meaning of the author, that's exegesis. Eisegesis is just the opposite. Eisegesis doesn't mean to draw out, it means to insert in. It means to insert in your own idea as far as what God's word means. And so pastors who do this, they take a text, a verse out of its context, and then they insert in what they think it means. And in doing so, they are not even preaching the word of God. It's a complete waste of time. Okay, and so, hey, topical preaching, it's great as long as that pastor is practicing exegesis. And we recognize, by the way, that there are a lot of good churches that love Jesus and teach topically every single weekend. We are grateful for those churches. We've just chosen a different route. We've chosen expository preaching here at Calvary because we wanna expose the meaning of God's word in a clear and understandable way. 
That means this, when you're an expository preacher, or you're a congregation that has an expository preacher, this is what it means. As we go through books of the Bible, we can't skip any subject. That means that we cannot skip not even the subjects that make us uncomfortable. How many of you guys believe that every single word of this book was breathed out by God in the original manuscripts? Right, do you really believe that? All right, so not just the words that make us feel good, but also the words that make us shift in our seat or loosen our collar a little bit or feel uncomfortable. It is not my job as a pastor to make you feel good. It is my job as a pastor to teach this book so that we understand God's heart. And so because God is the author of it all, we want to teach it all, even the challenging subjects. And so today we have a challenging subject. We have to answer the question, is hell real? We're gonna do that in the second half of the message, but first we have to deal with the issue of sectarianism because that's the topic of verses 38 through 41. Okay, so we're starting in verse 38. And the reason why we're starting in verse 38 because last week, church family, what verse did we leave off at? 37, this is what we do if you're a visitor, probably 90, 95% of the time. All right, so if you're looking at Mark 9, 38, just say amen. amen. I hope you bring your Bibles to church. John, the apostle John, said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And so John, the apostle John, had a sectarian spirit. What is sectarianism? Sectarianism is excessive devotion to a particular sect, especially in religion. In other words, when you're talking about Christianity, you know, some people who are involved in various denominations, sometimes they're so dedicated, they're so passionate about their denomination, you'll wonder if they're more passionate about their denomination than they are about Christ. That's sectarianism. And so when John and the other disciples saw a man who was not part of their group casting out demons in Jesus' name, they tried to stop that man. Hey, what do you think you're doing? You need to stop that right now. You need to stop ministering in the name of Jesus. And then John, maybe with his chest sticking out, went to Jesus and said, Lord, there was this guy, he was casting out demons in your name, but it's okay, we handled it. We told him to stop it right now. And maybe John expected Jesus to compliment him. Like, oh, great job, John. God forbid that there's any other groups out there that are ministering in my name. I'm so glad that you put a stop to those shenanigans or whatever the Lord said. And so, you guys really think that's how Jesus responded to John? All right, so look at verse 39. Let's find out how he responded. But Jesus said to John, knock it off. That's in the original Greek. <laughs> he said, do not stop him. 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name, in my name, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. And by the way, when you leave that verse in its context, he's talking about believers who are ministering in the name of Jesus. Hello, verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The Lord said, John, leave him alone. John, don't stop him. Now, why would Jesus give a green light to this guy who was casting out demons in his name? Well, at least, there's at least two reasons. Number one is because the guy was a true believer. He was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Number two is because he was operating in the power of God. He wasn't some religious fraud who was appearing to put on a show and cast out demons out of people. He was actually doing it. That means that God's hand was on this true believer even though he wasn't part of their group. Scholars have suggested that maybe this guy was a disciple of John the Baptist. And by the way, who did John the Baptist point to? Jesus. Or maybe, scholars say, maybe he was part of the 72 evangelists that, that Jesus sent out in Luke chapter 10 to spread the word. Okay, we don't know. What we do know is number one, he's a true believer. Number two, he's operating in the power of God. So what was John's beef? What was John so upset about? Well, let's look at verse 38 again. Let's find out. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following who? Us. See, the problem in John's mind was not that this guy wasn't following Jesus. The problem in John's mind was that this guy was not following us, the disciples. He wasn't in their group. And so John looked at him with suspicion, like, ooh, right? All right, so hey, here's your, here's your point today. We must stop looking at other believers who are not part of our group with suspicion. Can we just stop doing that? You say, how do you apply this to our church? Here's how, you recognize that God does his work through a lot of different people and a lot of different churches. Okay, that's how you look at it. So the pastor who stands up on a stage at church and says, we're the only church, I have one word of advice for you. Run. You've been here for a while. Just run. We're the only church. Come on, give me a break. Right, so please don't have the attitude. Uh, you should only go to Calvary Chapel churches. If it's not a Calvary Chapel, there must be something wrong with it. Hey, newsflash, there's millions of churches all around the world filled with people who are true believers, who are operating in the power of God like the guy in verse 38 and praise God for them. And so what attitude should we have? We should have the attitude of the 17th century theologian, a guy by the name of Meldinius. I used to think this came from um, Augustine, but I was corrected this week. So look at this, this is great. 
Meldenia said, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, diversity. And in all things, what? Charity, what's charity? Love, everybody say love. love. Hey, can we try that? Can we love our brothers and sisters in Christ even though they're not part of our group? Hey, in the essentials, unity. What are the essentials? There's lots of them. The two biggest ones in my book, Christology and Soteriology. Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And so when it comes to Jesus Christ, who do you believe Jesus is? If you believe that Jesus was created, I can never have unity with you, ever, religiously speaking. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is the only begotten of the Father, that he is true God, that God added a human nature to his divine eternal nature, and that he was born of a virgin, and he lived a sinlessly perfect life, and he voluntarily went to a cross and shed his blood to atone for the sins of the whole world and died, and three days later got up victorious and walked out of the grave, ascended to the right hand of God, and one day's coming back, hey, you're my brother, and you're my sister, no matter what group you, you, you belong to. Christology and soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. How are we saved? It's always been the same. Faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And by the way, true faith works. It's not faith plus meritorious works to earn salvation, wrong gospel. It is true faith. And if the Holy Spirit has come inside of your heart, you're gonna bear the fruit of repentance and works in your life. Christology, soteriology, that's the essentials and the non-essentials. Things like church polity, ministry methods, you know, personal convictions. Can we just have some diversity? Here's an idea. Can we chill out? That's in the original Greek too. <laughs> chill out. And in all things, charity, in all things, love. Why do some good churches look with suspicion at other good churches? Here's why, jealousy. What was this guy doing in verse 38? He was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, successfully. Those nasty things were really coming out of people. His ministry was blessed. Did the disciples have the same track record? What happened a few weeks ago? We studied it up in Caesarea Philippi when the father went to the disciples with his demon-possessed boy and they tried to cast the demon out. They couldn't do it. And the father said to Jesus, I, I asked your disciples to cast this demon out, but they were not able, right? And so maybe, maybe the disciples looked at this guy in verse 38 in our text today and saw that God was blessing his ministry and maybe they got jealous because the church down the street's growing and our church isn't growing so much. Be careful. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is let's not be like John look with suspicion 
at other churches and other believers. Let's be like Jesus who said, hey, just give a cup of cold water to people who belong to me, even though they don't belong to your group. Amen? That was weak. Can we do this? Amen? Amen. Hey, you know, here's what I believe. If they're true believers and they're operating in the power of God, praise God for them. Maybe more people will miss hell and go to heaven because of their ministry. And speaking of hell, let's, let's, let's get into it. Not literally, but <laughs> verse 42. Verse 42, you ready? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And so this solemn warning from the Lord is directed to those people who would have the audacity to lead one of these little ones into sin. John Phillips, one of my favorite commentators, he said this, in his commentary, it is a serious thing to cause a child to stumble, especially one of God's own children. And so before anybody even thinks of robbing a child of their innocence by exposing them to something inappropriate, they really ought to consider the solemn warning in verse 42. Before anybody even thinks of ever laying a hand on a child or abusing a child in any way, physically, mentally, sexually, verbally, they better really read verse 42 before they ever put a hand on a little kid. Before anybody ever causes any of God's children, I don't care how old or how young, to go into sin, they really ought to read verse 42 again. Let's read it. Whoever, this is the words of Jesus, and he means what he says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So what's a millstone? Well, there's an original one from Capernaum, right next to the Sea of Galilee. And a millstone back in the day was a huge stone that they would use to crush olives, to extract olive oil, or to crush grain, to extract flour. And those things were so heavy, they had to put a donkey and tie it up to the piece of wood and have that donkey ride, walk around in circles as it crushed the olives or the grain. And so, needless to say, those things weighed a lot. And if something that heavy was ever strapped around our neck and we were thrown into the Sea of Galilee, it wouldn't take long for us to sink 141 feet to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Now, ancient civilizations, the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the Romans, they all used this as one of their means of capital punishment. And so let's say you're in the Roman Empire, you commit some crime, they think it's deserving of death, they take you out on a ship, maybe into the Mediterranean Sea. There's one of those millstones there on the deck. They put a rope or a chain through the middle, they put a rope or the chain around your neck, and whatever 10 guys uh, push that thing over into the Mediterranean, and where do you think you're going? Right down to the bottom lungs burning, can't breathe, 
and you're dead. And so as horrifying as that judgment would be, Jesus said the judgment will be worse for anyone who leads one of these little ones into sin. Okay, so what could be worse than having a millstone tied around your neck and being thrown into the sea? The only thing I can think of is to be thrown into hell. And that's Jesus' subject in verses 43 through 48. It says in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to where? Hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Okay, and so the ancient manuscripts that the ESV um, gets this from in, in verse 48 is actually um, occurs three or four times for those of you who have the New King James Version. But nonetheless, Jesus did say it in verse 48. He says, concerning hell, verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Is hell real? Yes. How do you know? Because Jesus said it. And he knows what he's talking about. And by the way, hell was not created for human beings originally. Matthew 25, hell was created specifically for the devil and his angels, but you need to know that people go there who do not repent. Jesus said it not once, not twice, he said it three times. In fact, he preached more on hell than he preached on heaven as a warning so that people wouldn't go there. Now the word hell in our passage today is the word Gehenna. It's from the Hebrew. And we're gonna talk about Gehenna here in a moment, but before we do that, we gotta talk about the other New Testament word for hell, and that's Hades, okay? So what is Hades? If you're taking notes, Vine's Expository Dictionary, the region, Hades is the region of departed spirits of the lost. In point of time, it is for such, for such departed spirits who are lost, Intermediate between decease, the time someone takes their last breath, and the doom, the final doom of Gehenna. And so Hades is the place where the spirit or the soul of a person goes who dies in their sins. It's not where their body goes. Their body goes into the grave or is cremated or whatever, but the soul goes into the word is Hades, and Jesus uh, used that word in Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told the story, by the way, not the parable, because he never used proper names in parables, and in this story, in the second half of Luke 16, that Jesus told, it was about a rich man and Lazarus. He used his proper name. That's how we know it's a true story. And so, in that passage, second half of Luke 16, Jesus, what does he do? He tells how these two people went to two different places when they died. And so check it out, Luke 16. Jesus said, so it was that the beggar died. 
Okay, and so to get the scene here, you have a beggar, he's lying at the gates of a rich man's estate. He's begging for bread, no one's giving him anything. He has these sores, the dogs are licking his sores. He's just in a horrible place. And so he dies. And guess what happens? Here comes the angels. By the way, some of you have loved ones who knew the Lord recently who died. I just wanna tell you on the authority of God's word, the angels came and got him. Maybe you had a loved one pass away in the last five, 10 years. You need to know if they knew the Lord, the angels came and took him. Took him where? To Abraham's bosom. Okay, it's a deep study. I'm not gonna get into it, but let's just say for now, synonymous with paradise or heaven, whatever word you wanna use there, that's where the beggar went. That's where his soul went. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in where? Hades. He lifted up his eyes. That means he's conscious. There is no annihilation when you die. It's not like people say you die and that's it, you're done. No, we all have immortal souls. And so, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And so the poor man, Lazarus, no doubt a man of faith, he dies, his body goes into the ground, his spirit carried by the angels into paradise heaven, Abraham's bosom. The rich man, who by the way, if you're with me here, say amen, who showed his lack of faith by ignoring the poor. Oh, I said a little prayer. But you still live for yourself. You still ignore the poor. You never even think about people who are less fortunate. You never give a dime to anybody. Really? You really think you're going to heaven? Don't fool yourself because you said a little prayer. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And when you're a new man in Christ, a new woman in Christ, you help poor people, period. It's a fruit of salvation. And this guy ignored the poor, ignored Lazarus at his gates. His body was buried. I'm sure it was a big, elaborate, probably religious funeral where people got up and extolled him. But guess where his soul went? Down into Hades. And he's crying out for water to cool the tip of his tongue because he's in torment. And so some people die and their souls immediately go to heaven. Others die and their souls immediately go to hell. That's what God's word clearly teaches. There's no questions about it. And so if Hades is the temporary abode for the lost, what's the permanent abode for the lost? The word is Gehenna, otherwise known as the lake of fire. And so this is the word Jesus uses in our text today in Mark chapter nine. And so what does Gehenna refer to? Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnom. It's used figuratively as a name for the place of everlasting punishment. Okay, so Gehenna is the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, 
located just southwest of the old city of Jerusalem. If you go there today, it's an absolutely beautiful valley. So if you are standing in the old city of Jerusalem, the wall's going around and you look just southwest, you see this gorgeous valley, green grass, beautiful trees, flowers, depending on what time of year it is. That is the valley of Hinnom. But in Jesus' day, it was not beautiful. In Jesus' day, it was a garbage dump. And the reason why is because what some Jews did before Jesus came to the earth. And so the, the Jews in the Old Testament, they did some horrible things in that valley. Check out what Jeremiah the prophet said. This is going now back to 600 BC. So 600 years before Christ, Jeremiah, God's man, speaks out against sin. God speaks through his prophet and says this. They, okay, that's, that's the Jews in Judah. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, pagan God. And God, the true God says, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination. And so the Jews in the Old Testament before the time of Jesus, they were actually sacrificing their kids, making their kids walk through the fire, watching their own sons and daughters die. Why? As a sacrifice to pagan gods. In order to ask the pagan gods, Molech, Baal, whoever, to bless them, here, please bless me and I'll give you my kid, my little baby. By the way, we're still murdering babies today. And it's not right. Every single child is valuable in God's eyes. They're created in God's image and they have a right to live. And what were they doing in the Old Testament? They were sacrificing their kids. And do you know what happened in pagan nations all around the world? Archaeologists have, have dug it up. They've proven it. They've dug, dug, dug down. They've, they've done, done the uh, excavations. Um, one in particular article that I read in northern Africa, right around um, the ancient city of Carthage in modern-day Tunisia, um, they dug down to around the time of Jeremiah, and what did they find? They found hundreds of little urns filled with the little tiny bones of little babies where pagan people sacrificed their kids and above those urns, there was clay pots and, and pottery with inscriptions of their parents' prayers to the pagan gods asking them for their favor. And the Jews caught on to the pagan religions and they did the exact same thing in the Valley of Hinnom, outside of Jerusalem. Therefore, subsequent generations of Jews, they decided this place is desecrated, we're gonna make it into a garbage dump. And so it was a garbage dump in the time of Jesus. In the time of Jesus, guys, if you lived in Jerusalem and your wife told you to take the garbage out, you went down to the Valley of Hinnom and you emptied out your can or your bag or whatever it is. And so there's mounds and mounds of trash, animal carcasses, the bodies of criminals. The Romans would crucify Jews and say they don't need a burial and just throw them into this big garbage dump where the fire continually burned 
and where their worm dieth not. I'll explain that here in just a moment. And so Jesus is always looking for illustrations to teach God's word. So he looks at the Valley of Hinnom and he says, that's like hell. And he uses the Valley of Hinnom as an illustration of the reality of hell. One day, Jesus was talking about the topic of fear and he used the word Gehenna. Check it out in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and what? And body in, not Hades, in Gehenna. And so while Hades is the temporary abode for just the souls of the unsaved, the unrepentant, that's Hades. Gehenna is the permanent abode for both the souls and the bodies of the unsaved. Here's how it's gonna go down. And by the way, did you guys know that we know what's gonna happen in the future? People say, no one knows what's gonna happen in the future. Hello, God wrote it down. It's right here in black and white. The prophets of the Old Testament, the prophets of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. God loves people so much, he said, I'm gonna write it down before it even happens. The problem is we choose to ignore it. But in God's word, it says this, before the thousand year reign of Christ. How many of you guys believe Jesus is actually coming back? Okay, so listen to this. The Bible, God's word says before Jesus reigns for a thousand years, there will be the resurrection of the just, the saved. It's gonna happen in different stages. I don't have time to get into it. After the thousand year reign of Christ will be the resurrection of the wicked, the unsaved. And so at that time, Hades will be emptied out. All the souls, the millions and millions of souls that are in Hades will be released, including the rich man in Luke 16, will be released from Hades and the immaterial part of people will be reunited with the material part, the bodies. No doubt by then, DNA particles. Whether they're in the sea, whether they're in the land, the soul will be reunited with the body, a resurrection will occur, and these unsaved people will stand in their bodies before God at the great white throne judgment. And then this is gonna occur. Revelation chapter 20, then death and what? were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so at the great white throne judgment, it's the resurrected bodies of the unsaved that are gonna be thrown into the lake of fire, otherwise known as Gehenna. Fear not those who can kill just the body, Jesus said. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. And so how long will people be in Gehenna? Well, the same amount of time that people will be in heaven. Daniel chapter two, check it out. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, 
Some to what? And some to shame and what? The word everlasting in the Hebrew is the same word, whether you're talking about the saved or you're talking about the unsaved. There is no annihilation. We have immortal bodies at the resurrection and we will live forever, either in everlasting bliss or everlasting contempt. And by the way, where you go is not God's choice, it's your choice. Can you guys hear me and even though the rain, it's raining? Where you go is not God's choice, it's your choice. I, I don't know why, it grieves me, but there's churches this morning that are teaching that God before the creation of the world predetermined, created people to be damned. The doctrine is called double predestination. I'll never believe it as long as I live. I believe in predestination, I believe in election, but I do not, I will not believe in a God who creates people in order to damn them. No, just the opposite. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All who are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. And so people are going their own way, they're doing their own thing, they love their sin, and God tries to send light, he tries to send revelation, but they love their sin more than they love light. And so because of that, they choose their, their destination. And by the way, this is such a serious matter, Jesus gets into some shocking statements here. He says, hey, if your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. If your foot's causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes, if your eyes causing you to sin, tear it out, right? Well, what does that mean? That means repent. <laughs> It's, it's another sad thing to me that, that, that some pastors, they take repentance out of the gospel. Just say the little prayer, you'll be fine whether you change or not. No, if your hand's causing you to sin, cut the thing off is what Jesus is saying. Now let me add to that, he's not speaking literally. Some of you are saying, pastor, you really have to say that? Yeah, I really do because there was a guy in California that read Mark 9 and he cut off one of his limbs. Okay, so he's not, I don't want anybody to come in next week with slings and eye patches, right? <laughs> I did what you said, pastor, I applied the Bible. No, he's not speaking literally, he's using hyperbole. Hyperbole is exaggerated statements in order to drive a point home. What's the point? The point is, it'd be better for us to lose a limb or an eye than to pay for our sins forever in hell. Jesus is not talking about self-mutilation. How many of you guys know that if you, even if you were to cut off your hand, you'd still sin. If you cut off your left hand, you still got a right hand. Even if you cut off your foot or tear out your eye, you're still gonna sin. Why? Because your hand and your feet and your eyes don't cause you to sin where does sin come from? 
right here, there's the problem. It's the problem in me, it's the problem in you. It's the problem in all of us. You see, Jesus, Jesus said this. Just go back a couple pages to, to Mark 7. We talked about this a month ago, but I just wanna drive this point home that the problem is not with your hand or your foot or your eye. The problem is with our hearts. This is what Jesus says. He's now speaking literally, by the way. And in Mark chapter seven and verse 20, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the what? Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, in the Greek, it's pornea. That's all sex outside of marriage or sexual activity outside of marriage. This is Jesus talking. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, murder. Did you hear about the guy last week killed his wife and his two little girls? What is going on? People say, how in the world could the ancients sacrifice their children to pagan gods? Hey, it's still happening today. Murder is still much, as much in the heart of man as has been 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. Murder, adultery. Let me just say, if you're here today and you're living in an affair, you need to get right with God. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality. Sometimes people accuse me of you know, preaching too hard or preaching against sin. This is Jesus preaching right here. He's not done yet. Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within and they are what defile a person. And so what is needed, ladies and gentlemen, is a new heart. Okay, so how do you get a new heart? Here's how. You're going your own way, you're doing your own thing, you love your sin, you're not even convicted about your sin, whatever that sin might be, and then all of a sudden, you hear the good news of the gospel, that the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you hear that Jesus loves you so much, he came and died on a cross and paid for your sins so you don't have to. And you stop and then you got a choice. It's choosing time. Do I keep going my own way, doing my own thing, loving my sin, rejecting the light, or do I turn around? And by the way, turning around is not a work. People say, you're not saved by your works. Turning around is not a work. Being willing to repent of your sins, that's not a work. And I understand Jesus did all the work on the cross. But you turn around and you see Jesus up on that cross and you say, Lord, I give you my life. I believe you're the only way. Save me. And what happens? The spirit comes in and now he gives you a new heart. And as you're walking with the Lord, now you have supernatural power to say no to things like sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and all the other sins that damn the souls of men and women to hell. And so look again at verse 48. I wanna make sure 
that we uh, explain Mark chapter nine, verse 48. Speaking of hell, he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire. Okay, and so what does Jesus mean by the phrase, the worm does not die? Um, the late Methodist theologian, Adam Clark, check it out. It seems that everyone has his worm, his peculiar, what? There it is right there. His peculiar remorse for the evil he did and for the grace he rejected. While the fire, the state of excruciating torment is common to all. And so the worm that will never die in hell is that remorse that lost people feel, that lost people think of. Why did I choose that sin? Why did I love my sin more than the light? Why did I reject God's grace forever and ever and ever? But here's the good news. We don't have to ever go to hell. We can turn to Jesus Christ and honor him for the sacrifice that he made on our behalf and the behalf of the world. And we can give our lives to Jesus. And his spirit can come in and change us and make us like salt. Okay, here's your last verse, verse 50. Jesus says, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, Right, we all know pure salt can't lose its saltiness. He's talking about being mixed with impurities like around the Dead Sea. Uh, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. And hey, John, instead of trying to tell this guy to stop ministering in my name, be at peace with one another. And so the, before the invention of refrigerators, right, people would cover their meat in salt. You guys know this. The reason why is because they, they covered the meat in salt to slow down the process of corruption so the meat wouldn't spoil. Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. And so when we allow the spirit of God to change us from the inside out, we become salty. In other words, God uses all of us like salt as a preserving agent in our world to slow down the process of decay, moral decay. But here's how I wanna end the message. I wanna be clear as I can be. Some people say, pastor, I have a real problem with all this that you're talking about because I just have a hard time believing that a loving God would send anybody to hell. And let me emphasize again, it's not God's choice, it's man's choice. Do you wanna, you wanna see the heart of God? Look at 2 Peter 3, 9, right here. God is patient with you, not wanting, what's the word? Anyone to perish. But everyone to come to what? Okay, there's that word again. It's gotta be a change wrought by the Spirit from the inside out. And so maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus. I want you to hear this. God loves you. I mean, my goodness, he sent his one and only son who died for your sins, so you would never have to die and go to hell. That's how much he loves you. 
And then he, in case anyone doubts, he rose again the third day to authenticate it all. He loves you. He's not willing that anybody should perish. Would you come to Christ? Would you give him your life? 